the fact that there is illness and disease in the world can be traced back to Adam's sin and the death and decay that came as a result. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hi, I'm Bill Wright, and Tom is continuing his current series titled Prayer for All Seasons. We're looking at the priority of prayer and the power of prayer as found in James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18. Last time, Tom began to examine the practice of prayer in every circumstance of life. For believers, prayer is to be the very breath of our souls, the action that sustains our spiritual life in Christ. Today, Tom will examine one specific way that the book of James calls believers to pray, for physical illness. You'll be reminded that much of what we experience in our modern world of medicine flows out of the common grace of God. But as you'll hear in the study, prayer plays a significant part in the work of God in physical illness. Let's join our teacher right now to learn more about Jesus here on The Word Unleashed. Let's turn again to James chapter 5, and we come to a passage that deals with the issue of physical illness. You may be aware that in the mid-1800s, puerperal fever, or childbed fever as it's also called, was common in hospitals, and it was often fatal to the mothers who went to hospitals to give birth. Along came a man by the name of Ignaz Semmelweis. Semmelweis was a Hungarian physician who became the head of one of the obstetrics clinics at Vienna General Hospital. When he took over in July of 1846, a high percentage of the mothers who gave birth at the clinic died of this fever. This was widely known, by the way, throughout Vienna. Many of the mothers of Vienna preferred to give birth to their children on the street than in the hospital. Semmelweis began investigating the causes of puerperal fever and against the resistance of his superiors who believed that it could not be prevented and a cause could not be known. But in the hospital, there was a, a second obstetrics clinic there in Vienna General Hospital, and that clinic had a very low mortality rate. And so Semmelweis wanted to know why. Why was the mortality rate from childbed fever so high in his clinic and so low in the other? And he investigated, and through a series of providential circumstances, he eventually concluded that the only difference was that the doctors and students in his clinic also worked on cadavers. In those days, it was common for a doctor to move directly from one patient to the next without washing his hands. He would move from performing an autopsy on a diseased body to examining a living person and even to delivering a baby with absolutely nothing between. When Semmelweis made that connection in 1847, he ordered that in his clinic, hands be washed in a chlorine solution before each examination. Suddenly, mortality rates dropped in his clinic from 18% for mothers giving birth to 1%. Dramatic. He had found the cause, and yet he published his findings, and amazingly, the medical community rejected the practice. 
the scientific opinion of the time was that diseases were caused by an imbalance of the four humors of the body. Critics also argued that pausing to wash hands between each patient would take much too much time in the doctor's daily life. In fact, the practice of hand washing was only widely accepted years after Semmelweis's death when Pasteur confirmed the germ theory. As a result, thousands of women lost their lives. As I thought about that, I was reminded of James chapter 5. Because in a remarkable paragraph here at the end of James' letter, James argues that there is one particular kind of illness, and we'll talk about what that is, that is still commonly misdiagnosed. And the treatment for it is very simple, prayer. Let me read the passage to you. James chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Because the same subject appears in every one of those verses, it's clear that the theme of this paragraph is prayer. We noted last time that this passage breaks into two sections. First of all, in verses 13 through the middle of verse 16, we find the priority of prayer. And then beginning in the middle of verse 16, running through verse 18, the power of prayer. We began last time to consider the priority of prayer. And we discovered in verse 13 that in all the seasons and circumstances of life, we are to pray, regardless of our circumstances and regardless of our own perspective our own emotions about those circumstances, all of those things are to serve as an impetus to drive us to God. In verse 14, where we come today, James moves beyond that general sort of all-encompassing expression of prayer in all circumstances of life to one very specific circumstance. We are to pray in physical sickness. Notice verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Throughout history, there has been much confusion about the role of disease in the world. Even today, there are many professing Christians who argue that if you're a believer, God doesn't want you sick. In fact, they claim that God will always heal those who have enough faith. If you've ever heard them teach, this is exactly what faith healers like Benny Hinn, for example, claim. Joel Osteen, the poster child of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, his views are very similar as well. What does the Bible say, however, about sickness and disease? I think before we can look at James 5, we first need to back up and gain a biblical theology about illness and disease. 
I'm going to take a few minutes to do this because I think once we understand all that the Bible teaches about illness and disease, we're in a much better position to interpret James 5. So you bear with me because I want to give you, before we get to James 5 in our passage this morning, we will get there, I promise you, but let me give you five basic propositions that summarize most of what the Bible teaches about illness and disease. Five basic propositions. Number one, sickness of all kinds traces its roots to the fall and human sin. Sickness of all kinds finds its root in the fall. Ultimately, every disease, every physical defect can be traced to the reality of sin. Every illness and every sickness can be traced back to the Garden of Eden, to Genesis chapter 3, to the fall of Adam. It is part of the decay and entropy that came along with death as a result of sin. Romans 5 tells us that in Adam all die. With Adam's sin came death. And with death came the partners of death, decay and entropy. Thank God there's coming a time when death and its partners of decay and disease will be destroyed. Revelation 21 verse 4 says that in that day God will wipe away every tear. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. The fact that there is illness and disease in the world can be traced back to Adam's sin and the death and decay that came as a result. Proposition number two. God is always the ultimate cause of all physical problems. God is always the ultimate cause of all physical problems. Now, this comes just by nature of the fact of being God. God is by nature sovereign. That means nothing happens outside of His sovereign control. But there are several passages that make it very clear that even when it comes to physical problems, He takes responsibility. For example, God takes responsibility of congenital problems of birth defects, of defective genes, etc. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 11, you remember Moses claims that he's not able to speak well. Listen to what God says to him. Exodus 4:11. The Lord said to Moses, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute, or deaf, or seeing, or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? So the Lord takes absolutely full responsibility for the congenital problems that are a part of a fallen world. He also takes responsibility of diseases and illnesses and other physical maladies. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 39, also speaking through Moses, he says, See now that I, I am He, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal. And there is no one who can deliver from my hand. God is making this sweeping assertion about Himself. One is that in His hands lies the power of life and death. He determines who lives. He determines who dies. And He makes a sweeping assertion about His control 
of human illness. He says, I wound, and when healing comes, I heal. So God is always the ultimate cause of all physical problems, whether congenital or diseases and other maladies. Third proposition, God sometimes permits Satan to afflict people with illness. God sometimes uses Satan, he directs Satan to afflict people with illness for his own purposes. Job chapter 2, of course, is the great example of that. You remember that God came, or excuse me, that uh, Satan came to God and he said, consider Job, you know, he's, you tell me to consider him, but think about why he's serving you, God. It's because you blessed him. Everything you've done for him has made him be faithful to you, but if you take away all those things that he has, he'll curse you. God said, it's in your power, go. And Satan goes and destroys everything that belongs to Job. Satan comes back to the presence of God. God says, do you see that Job is still faithful to me? And Satan says, yes, but skin for skin, all that a man has will he give in exchange for his life. If you stretch forth your hand now and affect his body, he'll curse you to your face. And in Job chapter 2, verse 6, the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your power, only spare his life. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Now, don't miss the point. Some people blame Satan for everything and assume that he's doing it outside the power of God. It's clear even from this passage that Satan can only do what God permits and allows for his own purposes. But nevertheless, Satan is the one who is afflicting is the tool in the hand of God to afflict Job. You see the same sort of principle in Acts chapter 10, verse 38. Peter, talking to Cornelius, describes Jesus this way, He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So God uses Satan to bring illness at times. Satan always means it for evil, and God always means it for good. Number four, God is always the one who heals. This is in so many places throughout the Scripture. Let me just give you a few examples. Exodus chapter 15, verse 26. God says to Israel, I, the Lord, am your healer. In Deuteronomy 32, 39, which I read for you just a moment ago, God says, I have wounded, and it is I who heal. Turn to Psalm 41. Listen to David on this issue. Psalm 41, beginning in verse 1. David writes, How blessed is he who considers the helpless. The Lord will deliver him in a day of trouble. The Lord will protect him and keep him alive. He shall be called blessed upon the earth and do not give him over to the desire of his enemies. Verse 3. The Lord will sustain him upon his sickbed in his illness you restore him to health. Ultimately, God is always the one who restores to health. Over just a few Psalms to Psalm 68 and verse 20, we read, God is to us a God of deliverances, and to God the Lord belong escapes from death. Whether accidental or caused by illness, when we escape death, when we are healed, it's God who does it. Psalm 103, verse 3, there God is described as the one who heals all your diseases. 
So God is the ultimate healer. Now, sometimes God heals directly. He directly intervenes in people's lives. Of course, He did it, you remember, through the life of Jesus. Jesus went about healing everywhere He went with divine miracles. He gave the same power to His apostles in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. He gave them the power to heal. And you see a number of accounts of this in the New Testament. When you come to the epistles, there were those in the early church who were given the gift of healing, a miraculous gift. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, verse 28, and verse 30. I say in the days of the early church because in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, Paul tells us that miracles like these, the miracles of healing, were signs of the apostles. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 tells us that those miracles were intended to confirm the words of the apostles so that people would listen to what they said and what they wrote. And so we have in the Scriptures a word that can be believed. But the gift of healing went away with the time of the apostles. We have both the testimony of Scripture as well as the testimony of church history. Today's faith healers are at best self-deceived and at worst charlatans and deceivers. And I'm confident both exist. They're at best self-deceived and at worst they are charlatans and deceivers. Nevertheless, and this is important to note, while there are no miracle workers today, God does still work miracles of healing directly at times. While I believe God can and does on occasion heal miraculously, listen carefully, most of the time when God heals, He does so through means. Throughout human history, God has used the healing powers that He gave the body, medicine, and physicians to bring healing. For example, when you think of medicine... In the story Jesus tells of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, when the Good Samaritan discovers that man who had been attacked and robbed, how does he minister to him? He uses wine as a, an astringent and antiseptic on the wounds, and then he uses oil to soothe and heal, olive oil. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, Paul suggests that Timothy drink a little wine for digestive issues and other ailments. There are other examples of medicine being used and encouraged throughout the Scripture. Same thing, the same thing holds true with doctors. Physicians are first mentioned in the patriarchal period of biblical history. In Genesis chapter 50 and in Job 13. They've been around a long time. And in the Jewish Talmud, we read that every Jewish city had a physician that was licensed by that city's authorities. There was even a physician that was assigned to the temple to serve the priests in ancient Israel. Jesus himself alludes to the value of physicians. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 12, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. It's true that doctors are not always helpful. We read that in the Gospels. In Mark chapter 5, verse 25, Mark describes a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and, quote, had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had 
and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. That happens. It is, after all, a practice. We don't know everything. Even today, don't for a moment assume that doctors know everything. There's so much that we don't understand. And I'm confident if the Lord tarries a hundred years from now, the medical community will look back and shake their heads at some of what's done today. But it's also clear that God uses doctors as an expression of His common grace. You know, every time I walk into a hospital, I'm reminded of that. As I see the various technologies and ways of testing and the various procedures and surgeries, the various skills that God has given men and women to serve His creatures, understand Every time you see that, or every time you or one of the people you love benefits from that, that is an expression of God's common grace. He is the one who allowed those technologies to be discovered. He is the one who gave skills and gifts to those men and women who are part of the medical establishment. All of that is an expression of His grace to us. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, Paul refers to Luke as the beloved physician. Many commentators agree that Paul is not only affirming Luke's value as a doctor, but he's saying or implying that Luke has used his skills on Paul, that he's Paul's physician. He probably traveled with Paul and assisted him medically on a number of occasions. So unlike certain cults teaching, it is acceptable to use doctors and medicine. But it is God who ultimately brings healing. Sometimes He does it directly. Most often, He uses the means of the body's healing powers that He gave it, medicine and doctors. Number five, God always uses illness to accomplish His purposes. God always uses illness to accomplish His purposes. Ultimately, of course, everything God does is to bring Himself glory, and so all illness is to bring God glory. You see this in a couple of texts. In John chapter 9, you remember that there was the encounter between the disciples and Jesus. The disciples say, who sinned that this man was born blind, him or his parents? And that was the view they had. And Jesus says to them in verse 3, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. It was for God's glory to be manifest. In John chapter 11, verse 4, when Jesus heard about Lazarus' illness, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man may be glorified in it. All of our illness ultimately is intended to bring glory to God. But there are specific reasons that Scripture gives us for illnesses. And I want to just give you a quick catalog of them under this fifth proposition. Understand a few of the reasons for illness, a few of the ways God uses it in our lives. Number one, to get our attention. This is general throughout the Scripture. You see it, and you'll see it in several of the texts that we'll look at in a moment. To get our attention. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, writes, Pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is His megaphone to rouse a deaf world. 
That's exactly right. God uses sickness to get our attention that we are not capable of dealing with life here on our own and to turn us to Him. Number two, sickness is intended to test our faith and build endurance. To test our faith and build endurance. In Romans chapter 5, Paul says that tribulation, which is a general word for all of life's troubles, tribulations produce perseverance. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part three of his current series, Prayer for All Seasons. Tom will bring you part four on our next broadcast as he once again takes us to God's Word. And we do hope you'll join us then. And friend, we'd love to hear from you. If you haven't reached out before or if you're a first-time listener, we'd like to send you Tom's book, Jesus' High View of Scripture, free of charge. Just subscribe to The Word Unleashed on our website, and we'll mail you a free copy of Tom's book. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. And don't forget to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's the wordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.